Henry Flagler was already 60 years old when he crossed the St. John's River and redefined his entire life. He'd recently married his second wife and had just started his second career. He had already created an entire world for himself in the Northeast. When his first wife took ill and needed a place to call home, a place to vacation, Jacksonville became the Flagler Retreat. They had spent years fleeing the bitter cold winters of the Northeast to find warmth in what was then the tourism capital of the state. His wife, Mary, had bronchitis for almost her entire life and a physician believed that the warmer air of Florida could bring change to her life. During the 1880s, as a means to put down even steadier roots, Flagler invested in the creation of a hotel named for the most iconic Florida figure, Ponce de Leon. The Hotel Ponce de Leon was completed and opened in 1888, a monument of orange and white stone, lavish and extraordinary, and open to all of the richest tourists in the country. Except there was one hiccup. At the time, the trains to Florida's east coast ended in Jacksonville. Another baron, who we'll talk about later this month, had already tried to make his mark in the Florida train industry, but as St. Augustine became more and more of a tourist destination, it became evident that there needed to be more expeditious transportation on the East Coast. Currently, if one wanted to get from Jacksonville to St. Augustine, it would require, quote, a leisurely cruise down the broad St. John's River, then the boarding of a narrow gauge railroad for a few remaining miles as passage eastward to the ultimate destination, end quote. It was hardly glamorous. Flagler knew that the idea of luxury was how you could sell Florida's East Coast, and a clogged up, muggy train ride from the river to the city was hardly that. There was, however, no train track across the St. John's River. There was no bridge. There were loads of tracks around Jacksonville and a few near St. Augustine, but they didn't connect. So Henry Flagler bought them all, and he built a bridge. It was the first bridge over the St. John's River. This river had several different names over the years already. Its first name was Wilaca, named by the Timucua people to mean River of Lakes. Then the Spanish called it Rio de Corrientes, or the River of Currents. Then the French called it the River of May, the Spanish renamed it to the San Mateo, and finally the Rio de San Juan. The name stuck. It runs for 310 miles, and at its widest, it's three miles across. It began in the middle of the state, with its water feeding directly from swamps and wetlands in the central area of Florida. This area is larger than the river itself, with the basin that feeds the river making up 2,000 square miles. It flows northeast, winding slowly until it reaches the Atlantic Ocean. All told, it's the longest river in the state of Florida. Up until 1890, it was an unbreakable line in the state, with boats being the only means to get by at the wider spots. There weren't many cities in the state, and to have two of the most significant split by a river was untenable as Florida drew ever closer to the turn of the century. Ever the industrialist, Henry Flagler knew that this new chapter of his life couldn't really be completed without this bridge. There's no way to know for sure, but it feels a little like Flagler had reached the end of the line in St. Augustine. He had built a palace. He had a wife who made him happy, and maybe he could retire here on the sunny coastline of East Florida. He was, after all, 60 and had already made his millions after starting off the poor son of a miserable preacher. Maybe before he built that bridge, he could have hung up his hat and never spent another penny. For most, that would have been it. If he had, Florida as we know it would not exist. But that's not what happened. Flagler built the bridge and in more ways than one, opened the door into a future that he never could have dreamed of. 
I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. Every Friday for the month of June, I'll be telling you about the father of Florida, Mr. Henry Morrison Flagler. I'll tell you about his successes, his failures, and the monuments of industry that he left in his wake. This week, the young boy who left his family to get into business, how that business brought him to the top of the world, and every milestone of his 60 years before he crossed the river. Today, Chapter 1. Tyrants and the Tyrannized. When you trace back in your mind to remember when you first heard a name, it's nearly impossible. Some names feel like they were built in, so commonplace in your upbringing that you can't imagine learning it. Your family members' names, the names of your favorite characters, even your own name. To track down when you first knew those is nearly impossible. It gets even trickier when it comes to history. When did you first hear of George Washington, Harriet Tubman, Abraham Lincoln, William Shakespeare, Cleopatra? For me, that list includes two famous Floridians, Chief Osceola and, of course, Henry Flagler. If you've never heard his name, it's hard to figure out where to start. Henry Morrison Flagler made the modern Florida. There's no way to say that without sounding like hyperbole, but I'm not exaggerating. The Florida we live in today would not exist without the direct action of Mr. Flagler. He was a millionaire industrialist who made his money in a handful of different industries over the years. By the time he died in 1913, he had carved a line using his railroad from Jacksonville to Key West, leaving entire cities in his wake and generating the communities that we all live in today. At the same time, he was ripping up previously untouched land for the purpose of construction and the state's ecosystem will never be the same. These things are not mutually exclusive. Henry Flagler was an engine of change because of his confidence. In every image of him, you can see his entire character in just his face. You can also see his father, Reverend Isaac Flagler. They have a similar mouth tucked in proudly with a sharp angular nose and soft thin eyes. In the only portrait of the Reverend, he has a large white beard with no mustache, framing his ruddy cheeks and thin mouth. Henry Flagler had a huge mustache for most of his life, covering up almost his entire mouth. It's impossible to imagine how it looked when he spoke, but it's likely that it's sort of toughed out with every breath. Isaac had three wives, and the third was Henry's mother. Her name was Elizabeth Caldwell Harkness, and she had two children of her own, her son Daniel and her stepson Stephen. Henry was born to Elizabeth and Isaac in 1830 in Hopewell, New York. His father, the Reverend, was a Presbyterian minister who couldn't quite settle down. He was always moving from ministry to ministry, looking to find a place to lay down roots, but never fully doing so. This meant that Flagler grew up in relatively poor conditions. The American frontier was spreading west at the hand of President Andrew Jackson. Even though the Civil War was looming, our nation was experiencing a wealth of optimism for those who wanted to make lives of their own. Perhaps the Reverend saw himself on that path, but Henry did not. All of this was a dead end for him, and his father's false ambitions drove Henry out of the house. At the age of 14, he left the Flagler household and joined up with some relatives in Ohio in order to get a job. He worked in a general store owned by his uncle, where he was, quote, working long hours to save money and often refusing invitations to join acquaintances on weekend jaunts to nearby Sandusky, end quote. It was there during the mid-1840s that Henry Flagler encountered his first true industrial investment corn. 
Ohio, where Flagler was situated, was a hub for corn in the middle of America's corn belts during the mid-1800s. Just one-fifth of the states in the country produced half of the total corn in the country. Ohio was perfectly situated to be the heart of corn's momentum eastbound. Huge shipments of corn could leave the surrounding areas of Ohio, meet up in Cleveland, and then would be sent to Chicago, New York, Boston, and beyond. I'm sure your eyes are glazing over imagining the kind of conversations that corn business magnets would be having in the 1800s. Flagler, however, took to the industry for the same reason he took to everything. Money. It's the very first thing that becomes clear about Flagler as a person. Even if he isn't particularly interested in the thing, if he can make money off of it, he throws himself into it no matter what. He worked as a clerk in a general store for some time until joining up with his half-brother's company called Chapman, Harkness & Company. At the age of 19, he moved to Bellevue, Ohio, where he took on a job making $400 a year, which is about $13,000 a year in modern cash. This means that Flagler got a big promotion, but in modern terms, he was making less than minimum wage. But this money became the basis of his fortune. The kid had a knack for the corn trade. He was making salary and commission, but he was rooming with his half-brother Dan for years. He was barely spending money of his own. By 1853, he married Dan's cousin Mary. Mary and Flagler, though both being related to Dan, shared no blood relation themselves. Dan, however, married his own first cousin. A decade passed in Bellevue. Flagler entered his 20s, then his 30s. He had two kids, Jenny Louise and Carrie Harkness Flagler. He'd become a partner in Dan's company and they had opened a distillery to start using grain in order to produce liquor. Flagler hesitated at first. His Puritan upbringing conflicted with the idea of being the source of such a substance. He was convinced to change his mind by Dan after the argument had been made that the distillery could be just as profitable as the grain industry. Dan was right. And by the time the Civil War came to America, the 31-year-old Flagler was standing on the edge of the next big chapter in his life. Nine hundred miles south, the state of Florida was facing its own turning point. We'd only been a state for a little over 15 years when we seceded from the United States, officially making ourselves an enemy state. It was January 10th. 1861. Within two months, we were one of 11 seceded southern states that formed the Confederate States of America. War broke out at Fort Sumter on April 12th of that very same year, and the rest is history. Florida itself was not a serious point of conflict in the war. We were a major trading state at the time, especially by sea, and a Union blockade left us shut out and kept our economy weak. Smaller ships would sneak through the blockade at night, but the fact remained, we were locked in. Many Floridians did not want to get involved in the conflict. We had 140,000 people in the state, 63,000 of whom were black citizens. Most of them were actually free persons, and some even secretly aided the Union soldiers who still held forts on the peninsula. Most others took to hiding in the swamps and forests, refusing to get involved. We were untouched for months, getting involved in minor skirmishes at the borders along the Panhandle and along the coasts. We really entered the fray in 1862 when the Union started taking Florida on head first. In March of 1862, St. Augustine was taken and Jacksonville shortly thereafter. By October, the Confederates had prevented those Union soldiers by blocking off their main mode of transportation, the St. Johns River. 28 years before Flagler built his drawbridge across the St. Johns, Brigadier General John Brannan of the Union Army led a fleet of gunboats into the St. Johns River. 
From the other end, an infantry force headed towards Jacksonville, set to surround the Confederate blockade of the river. By all accounts, no blood was drawn here. The Confederate contingent at the river retreated, seeing they were surrounded and without any other option. The city never fell again during the war and became a refuge for black citizens in the state for the remaining two and a half years. The St. John's River aided in saving their lives. Back in Ohio, in the industrious town of Cleveland, an entirely different businessman was starting out on the path to legendary success. His name was John D. Rockefeller. He is still to this day known as the richest American of all time and possibly the richest person of the modern era. Adjusted for inflation, Forbes estimates that his net worth was $409 billion. Currently, one of the richest persons in the world is Jeff Bezos, and he is worth just shy of $200 billion. Nobody was like John D. Rockefeller, ever. But in the 1860s, Rockefeller was just a businessman, just like Flagler. He was younger than Flagler by nine years. In 1863, when Rockefeller created the business that would launch his career, he was just 24 years old. He and another business partner founded an oil refinery business that, by the end of the Civil War, was called Rockefeller and Andrews. He was able to secure funding to even begin such an oil business because the Civil War had been massively profitable for the North, so Cleveland bankers had loads of money to invest. Flagler was facing a similar windfall as his grain shipments were being sent directly to Union troops during the war. Though Flagler opposed the idea of war, he was a Unionist who decided to take advantage of the war for his own gain. It was via the railroad and the grain connection that Henry Morrison Flagler and John Davison Rockefeller met. History is filled with moments like this, and it puts into perspective just how crucial our human connections can be. The past can sometimes look sepia-toned and loses the personality that was certainly present at the time. Imagine Rockefeller and Flagler, like modern business partners, or even as yourself and a friend. These two massive titans of industry were friends. The family of Flagler's wife had invested in Rockefeller, and the two became co-workers. Flagler was years ahead of Rockefeller, but Rockefeller was in the thick of urban expansion in Ohio. Rockefeller was wise and bold, while Flagler was charismatic and certain. They walked to work together in the mornings, and they would walk back home at night swapping strategies, plans, numbers, documents, ideas, stories, dreams. The years after the Civil War were a time of vast technological expansion, and the human factor is easy to lose, but here, in the streets of Cleveland, as two relatively young businessmen sought the future, it almost feels impossible. Who did these men think they were allowing that confidence to motivate them in their business? When they found this companion in each other, someone who saw the world like themselves, it's doubtful that they could see what would come next. No one could have predicted that these men would create Standard Oil, and that Standard Oil would become the most infamous behemoth in American history. In the late 19th century, oil became necessary. Machines relied on oil to survive, and refining oil was the biggest hit industry that the country had ever seen. Flagler, in pursuit of yet more money, found a plan for Standard Oil to grow. Flagler knew that everyone was basically doing the same process to refine oil. How do you get ahead in a business where everyone is basically selling the same product? Easy. 
you do it cheaper. So Flagler was sending more oil for cheaper prices. This was brilliant and Flagler was certain it would work, but they didn't have the money for that. Rich as they may have been, the company could not sustain a plan like that for long. So they went public and started selling shares. This brought in enough money for the plan to succeed. Rockefeller and Flagler had beaten their competition handily and the money came rolling in. It's 1880 now. Standard Oil, as well as its partners, had moved to New York City. They'd beaten almost all other competition for oil, not just in Ohio, but in the entire country. It's believed that their company, quote, controlled the refining of 90 to 95% of all oil produced in the United States, end quote. Henry Flagler was 50 years old and had three children, millions of dollars, a monopoly like nothing else, and one very sick wife. He was still poor at social engagements, preferring to spend time with Mary as she struggled with her illnesses. He bought an estate looking over the Long Island Sound called, I'm not kidding, Satan's Toe. He had started vacationing with his wife in Jacksonville, the former Union safe harbor of Florida. It was a common thing for the rich to take getaways in this city, and Flagler was no exception. The preacher's son had peaked. Three children, a 32-acre estate to call his own the biggest company in the world with the biggest monopoly of all time under his belt. Whatever Flagler's plan was when he got that job at the general store, he certainly could never have planned for this. Henry Flagler was on top of the world. Then, in May of 1881, his wife Mary died. It's impossible to conceive of what this meant for Henry Flagler. They had been together for nearly 30 years, having gotten married when Henry and Mary were 23 and 19, respectively. She was 47 and left behind three kids, one of whom was just 10 years old. Flagler had been back and forth between New York and Florida for a few years now, and with Mary now gone, it may have felt as if all the travel was for naught. By all accounts, Henry was shattered. Standard Oil was still growing, however, under Rockefeller's guidance. Now they had formed what is called a trust, essentially an alliance of corporations under one bigger corporation. This allowed them to appear as if the company was not a monopoly when, in fact, they were growing larger and larger and becoming more and more of a dangerous entity. They were the only real oil company in the country, and thus the world. The U.S. Senate had formed an antitrust committee to combat Standard Oil's growth. There. As he testified for Congress, Flagler was called a crook and a robber. The U.S. government could see through Standard Oil's plans. They were now cornered. There's a quote here that is attributed to both John D. Rockefeller and Henry Flagler. It goes as follows, quote, I would rather be my own tyrant than have someone else tyrannize me, end quote. We aren't entirely sure who said it first. Rockefeller often said that most of their early philosophies came from Flagler, so this quote may come from Henry himself. Regardless, it tells you exactly what kind of men were running this machine and thus the country. Rockefeller never surrendered from this belief, but when Mary died and the antisocial Flagler found himself receding even further into his New York estate, the call of Florida seemed more and more attractive. And not to mention, there was a new woman in his life, Ida. Ida Alice was 18 years younger than Henry Flagler when they married on June 5, 1883. 
She was 35, he was 53. She was vibrant and social and dizzying to this old businessman. She had been Mary's caretaker in the last few years of her life, so she had spent many, many years in Florida herself in Flagler's company, taking in the humid air and sweet relaxation. Henry Flagler had been plagued for decades with the prospect of hard work and bitter responsibilities. He loved his first wife, certainly, but her illness had been a point of constant stress in their lives. Standard Oil had been his baby with Rockefeller. Now, everyone had their eyes on the corporation as it monopolized. Flagler refused to be tyrannized, not even by his own prospects. He had to be his own tyrant. There was no other option. Florida was calling his name. St. Augustine became Henry's new favorite spot. His honeymoon with Ida was spent in St. Augustine and lasted for four whole months. Within a year, they were back, and Flagler started spending some of that oil money on, what else? Orange groves. He wasn't getting into the citrus industry, however. These oranges weren't producing much, and Flagler was ready to invest in Florida's new leading industry, tourism. If you've never seen the Hotel Ponce de Leon, you won't believe me when I say that the building glows. Most of it is made up of white stone structures with orange roofs, orange detailing, and orange columns making up the central building. It is in the heart of St. Augustine between the San Sebastian and Matanzas rivers. St. Augustine is covered in spectacular, historic buildings, but the Hotel Ponce de Leon shines. Now it is the main building of Flagler College, a liberal arts college with an attendance of about 2,500. It is the kind of building that you can't believe has survived, with these beautifully detailed concrete structures lining the roofs and hallways, inside a gilded rotunda with natural light and historic fixtures that make the whole room fill with the kind of amber glow that you can only find in places like this. It's so rich with history. The Hotel Ponce de Leon was Flagler's first major investment in a long line of tourism ventures. Construction began in 1885. It was unusual for a man of Flagler's caliber to suddenly pivot into the lowly business of tourism. Journalists from all over the country visited the construction site where Henry would march the grounds nearly every day. Journalists wanted an explanation. Flagler had only one. Quote, For the last 14 or 15 years, I have devoted my time exclusively to business, and now I am pleasing myself." End quote. He used local rock mining in public land for his concrete. He had furniture flown in to suit the extravagant environment he was seeking to create. He had even gone so far as having electric lights installed. The building itself was created by John Carrer and Thomas Hastings. It was their first major collaboration as architects. They would go on to develop Flagler's home, Whitehall, where Flagler would eventually die. After they worked for Flagler for a few years, they would then return to New York and create their most iconic building, the famous New York Public Library. When the Ponce de Leon Hotel finally opened in 1888 after years of construction and work, it all paid off. It was a runaway success. It was January 12th of that year and guests were pouring in the exotic orange glow and the glamorous furnishings resulted in a place that felt unlike anywhere else on earth. Visiting journalists considered it to be one of the finest hotels in the country. 
Flagler was friends with none other than Thomas Edison himself, and Edison provided the lights for the hotel personally. Tiffany provided the stained glass that encased the dining room and washed it in a brilliant, ambient, colorful light. Murals lined the walls, luring in visitors to come in and look even if they couldn't stay at the hotel itself. About one month after opening, the Ponce de Leon Hotel was visited by the sitting United States President Grover Cleveland, as well as First Lady Frances Cleveland. President Cleveland was running for re-election in November and was taking a train tour of the South as a means to gain Southern support. He was greeted by Flagler at the train station and was met with fanfare and flowers at the hotel. It's unlikely that Flagler himself was a fan of this president as Cleveland wanted to reduce tariffs across the board. This could be bad for Standard Oil's monopoly on oil in the United States. Luckily for Flagler, Cleveland was voted out of office that year and President Benjamin Harrison entered the office, keeping tariffs high. Flagler, however, always the showman, was glad to get the presidential seal of approval on his brand new venture. But Flagler's heartache was not at an end. As he went about building a second hotel in St. Augustine for those of lesser means, family tragedy struck again. His daughter, Jenny Louise, had a devastating unsuccessful childbirth and had become terribly ill. Taking after her mother, Jenny believed a trip to Florida might lift her spirits. She set off to visit her father in 1889. Her illness took her, and she passed on the boat to St. Augustine. Henry Flagger had somehow lost even more than before. He built a church in town to honor his lost daughter and her stillborn child. Of course, he turned to construction to fill that hole in his heart. It all began to fester for Henry. His second wife, Ida, was beginning to act more and more erratic, holding seances and Ouija board sessions in their hotel suite. She hosted elaborate, expensive parties in the hotel ballrooms, and it cost Henry some of his spare cash from Standard Oil. To make it all worse, Ida was having an affair. Not a real affair by all accounts, it was with the Tsar of Russia. The spirits from her Ouija board had told her that the Tsar was in love with her and they would be wed when Henry eventually died. Women were often diagnosed as hysterical in this era, but it's clear that Ida was suffering some sort of mental illness that went untreated and mostly ignored by Henry. It's unfortunate to say this was a very common occurrence, even with the most rich of women. It was 1890 now. Flagler had reached yet another peak in his life, but he was now surrounded on all sides by heartache, pain, and anxieties. When you were one of the richest persons in the entire world, where do you go from here? Henry had always gotten to work when he was feeling his worst, and 1890 was no different. See, no one had built railroads in Florida for nearly 30 years. What existed was barely connected and didn't make up a complete route. There was no way to take a train all the way to St. Augustine. This was a problem without an obvious solution, and the ever-innovative Henry decided that this could be the conflict that would recapture his imagination and ambition. He needed to cross the river. He would need to sink construction into almost 100 feet of water in order to hold it firm. He had faith in his engineers and they in him. The plan was set. They were going to cross the river. You can almost see him. A man of 60, he was sturdy and proud, with a mustache that pulled focus from everywhere else on his face. 
He commanded space and time and energy from everyone around him. Rockefeller would often point out that if it wasn't for Flagler's enthusiasm, nothing would ever have happened in their lives. That enthusiasm hadn't dwindled. Not with the death of Mary, not with the death of his eldest child, not with the growing pressure of Standard Oil, and not with the increasingly unusual behavior of Ida. Nothing could stamp that fire. No one, not since he had left his father's home at the age of 14, had ever told Henry Morrison Flagler what to do. He was his own tyrant, always moving, always commanding, always in charge. The St. John's River was a tyrant in its own right, an unbeatable line that split Florida's two biggest northern cities. You could work with the river, but you couldn't beat it. That wasn't good enough for Henry Flagler. Nature could not dictate his path, nothing could. So in 1890, with a wave of tragedy fading in the background, Henry Flagler built the first bridge across the St. John's River, and he never looked back. By the time he died, over 20 years later, Henry Flagler built railroads that stretched 500 miles from Jacksonville to Daytona to Palm Beach to Miami to Key West. He created whole cities in his wake and ripped entire ecosystems out of existence. The St. John's River Bridge was just the beginning. Thank you so much for listening to this first episode in the four-part series on Henry Flagler. Be sure to share this episode with a friend or anyone who you think will enjoy a good story like this one. Please consider leaving a rating or a review below. It's the best way for new listeners to find a little show like this one. Also be sure to subscribe so that whenever the new episodes come out, they automatically download to your phone. You can follow the show and see the updates as it goes on at WFMPod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. That's at WFMPod. You can send me an email at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. If you have an episode topic, I'm planning all of the great episodes for season two, and I would love to hear what you want to hear stories about. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. The Flagler theme song is Echo's Boogie Dance Hall by Lobo Loco. The primary resource for this episode was Last Train to Paradise by Les Standiford. You can find links to the other resources in the description below. The Flagler series art was done by Lauren Nix. You can follow her on Instagram at lauren.nix.photo. That's Nix spelled N-I-X. Next week, Chapter 2 the Iron Frontier, the story of the other Henry in Florida, Henry Plant, and the friendly rivalry that shaped Florida forever. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, buy a reusable water bottle, and drink more water. See you Friday.